0: It's the 10th season of Robot Chicken on Adult Swim, so we're going in deep with the folks behind this critical part of the Adult Swim block. My guest today, the co-creator of Robot Chicken. This guy is everywhere. Right now, he's here with me, embedded deep within the Stupid Buddy Studios campus in fashionable Burbank, Seth Green.
1: What's Keith really like? Keith Crawford? Yeah, uh, I love Keith. I, I took for granted after the first several meetings that Keith liked me and that he was having fun. Um, and I based on, on the fact that he would continue to show up. And uh, he, when we went to big group events, whether it was the shrimp boil or um, upfronts and stuff like that, that Keith would want to hang out with us. So even if he didn't say anything, uh, even if he stood stoically and his demeanor implied that he was not having fun and that he was quietly judging. I just assumed that he liked me or he wouldn't keep trying to uh, be in my proximity. That's confidence. When I first met him, I went
0: to Malero and I said, I've I've been working for Keith for three days. I don't know what the fuck I did, but he hates me. I've I've done something terrible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he definitely gives that impression. But he's, you know, he's a um, he uh, he displays an economy of emotion um, and he does not uh, waste (laughs) words or expressions. And so like like I said I That's just well took said. the fact that he continued at at group events where he'd have the option of hanging out with anybody or going anywhere that he uh, he would consistently be nearby. Bring me to the meeting with Lazo yeah. in Santa Monica. Um Matt, Matt and I were buddies uh through Toy Fair magazine, which I was a fan of and he brought me into uh, uh write an article for them and then we just became buddies because we liked all the same stuff and so I'd come stay at his house in New York and um, I'd see him when he was in LA we'd meet up at San Diego Comic Con that kind of stuff and then I had finished I don't know if it was the second Austin Powers but they had just made action figures from Austin Powers and I had an appearance coming up on Conan O'Brien and I was just like tired of doing press and talking about myself and I'd seen people like um, Dana Gould or um, uh, I, can't, I can't remember who else. They just make shorts and bring like some little film that they'd made onto a talk show. And I thought, oh, that's really fun. And I, I didn't have an idea like that, but I thought it'd be cool to do some stop motion thing with action figures. Uh, Conan had had a, a, a toy made from Hasbro as a promotional thing. And I had this Scott Evil action figure. And I thought somewhere there was like a story about me and Conan saving the world or something. And uh, I approached Matt about, hey, would you want to help me make this? Like maybe this one or two minute short about my toy and Conan's toy. Would you want to help me make this? Because I knew they produced those kinds of things and they'd never done uh, stop motion or or live um, uh, footage like that. But, but I knew that they had a, a lot of experience in how to tell a story in toy form. Um, so while he and I were researching how to do it and approaching all these stop motion houses and just trying to understand what the mechanics were. Um, It coincided with Sony developing a linear content portal, like a precursor to YouTube uh, in 1999. And they were, uh, actively recruiting creators to make them content for this thing that w- wasn't even accessible by broadband. Broadband technology didn't exist yet, so it was dial-up. And you're talking about people trying to download massive data files <laughs> through right. a phone line, uh, which was impossible. But Sony was like, oh, fuck it. We're just going to put some money towards this and see what it is. Wow. And so they did. They, they hired us. They hired uh, Fred Armisen. They, um, uh, they, they had that, um, that Lenore... Uh, animation. um, And they were just like, hey, we don't have any money, but what can you make for like $40,000? Can you make us like an hour of content that we could break up into short form? I don't know. Yes. So we we paired up with um, these guys (coughs) that had been making uh, music videos, this company Shadow Machine, and we're like, hey, we've got about $40,000. What do we think we can make for that? And so we wrote... um, 12 uh, one to three minute sketches and they were things like the real world metropolis and movie trailers for things like the Scarlet Letter 2 and um, it, it was uh, our precursor to Enter the Fat One which was the story of uh, Joey Fatone becoming a, um, a martial arts expert and battling a super Britney Spears monster um, to avenge the death of his band and um, <laughs> Uh, you know that that uh, platform spectacularly failed uh, because no one could watch it, and uh, <laughs> Sony Digital ceased to even be an entity. Wow. But Going I went under. Yeah, but I made a deal with uh, the lawyer representing our project to be able to shop that content around, and so we were taking that forty minutes of content because um, I knew it was something. It was good. Well, it was something. I didn't. It was something. <laughs> yeah, it was something that nobody was doing. It was new. Yeah, it was. Um, and uh, we, we had a minute where it was uh, in development at Comedy Central. And uh, I, like we had taken it to Saturday Night Live. I would proposed it to Mad TV. We thought this was interstitials in one way or another. We thought it could be like an MTV thing because uh, I loved liquid television growing up and thought, oh, maybe this is something like that. I know this is content uh, before people were even having that, that content conversation. And then uh, September 11th happened. Um, and it, it effectively killed comedy <laughs> for a year right. across all television, and our deal with comedy went away. Comedy Central went away. So Comedy Central almost yeah made we the almost show. Uh, you know we were in development. I mean, a million shows a year are in development, and nothing necessarily translates. But but there was a point where we were talking about a program, and everything just fell apart when when uh, everybody's mandates changed. Right, um, and then about two years after that, Seth MacFarlane. Uh, oh, and one of the places we had solicited was Cartoon Network, but it was pre the Adult Swim being its own established original content creator. And this was adult. Yeah, this was very uh, mature. Um, and Imm- so, Immature, mature. Yeah. Well, so Seth MacFarlane, uh, Seth MacFarlane, I met on Family Guy in like 97, 98. And Family Guy went off the air around that same time. Um, and he, Mike Lazzo, had the brilliant idea of getting the unaired season of Family Guy and the first season reruns and uh, uh, running them as a a second run on Adult Swim. Um, And McFarlane called me up and was like, hey, these guys are making stuff. Um, You should show them that thing. And um, that's what we did. (laughs) So it sounds sounds all matter of fact, but it really was as simple as that. You put Um, a tape in the mail. No, we... um, God, did we? I can't even remember what the process was. I just know that Matt and I had a meeting that they said that a meeting got set up with me and Matt and Lazo and Keith. And they had already seen our 40 minutes of content. And so we're in this office in Santa Monica and it was one of those like rent this office. And there was no phones. There was. A minimum a, a minimum a minimum, of furniture. and um, uh, I worked
0: in that office. You did? Yeah, we were cutting a season of Space Ghost in there. No shit. Yeah, it was me and one other guy, and it was a big floor, and there were tons of desks piled in the corner, and no
1: phones, and lots of jelly beans, and that was about it. We did not have a visual confirmation <laughs> of that large floor. We just had this one tiny room, and I still maintain that Lazo had no shoes on and had his feet up on the desk. Um, And that Keith was not in a chair, that he was standing ominously behind Liza with his arms crossed, The stoic expression firmly in place. And um, the thing that I remember Mike saying was, uh, I I don't like stop motion. But but your thing, this this is funny. And we were like, oh, okay. What does that mean? Is this good or bad? What does that mean? And he was like, you think you can make uh, 20 of them? And I was like, 20 of them. <laughs> 20 what? 20 shorts? And he was like, no, like quarter. I don't even remember if we talked about quarter. I don't remember. I just remember Matt and I leaving that room and saying, do we have a show? Did we just get, did he just buy that? Is this a thing? And, you know, within the next weeks, we were making a deal to produce 20 quarter hours. Wow. That's we a huge we had no fucking idea how to do it. Like we had pulled off this 45 minutes of con- this, like 40 minutes of shorts Matt and uh, all of our writers, they still lived in New York. They still worked out of they – were, they were all still – they had their jobs, their real jobs. We produced all of those shorts under the most insane of circumstances with me being the only person in Los Angeles on site. It's the first practical experience I ever had producing. It was the moment where I understood that – Producing was something that an individual does, that you literally produce this show as if producing a, a key from your pocket. And meanwhile, you have an acting career. Yeah, I was pretty – I was still doing that all day long. How do you do both? I'm, I'm exhausted, man. How did you do both
0: when I, you had 20 episodes of a new show to create?
1: Well, when we Coastal. made the first season of Robot Chicken, I made a movie uh, that shot in London and in Hungary – uh, over the same period of time, and it's the dumbest thing I've ever done. Um, I got so sick uh, by the end of our season that I was nearly hospitalized for it. Um, they were like, "I've never seen a case of dehydration like this before," and I was like, "Oh, dehydration—that's code, right?" And they right. were like, "No, seriously, you need you need an infusion of fluids into your body. Like immediately, you might die." They were like, "Eat this banana. You're uh, bordering on malnourished." And wow. um, the the so the the silly the silly. Truth of that is I just did both. So because I was far enough uh, on the opposite side of the world that the uh, time zones matched up, I would work an entire day on the movie. And then when I wrapped, I would go home and I would have video conferences with everybody in Los Angeles who were just starting the work. And we had gotten the show well set up and already in physical production by the time I went to do the movie. But it was dumb. It's the dumbest thing I've done. Having never done it before... Having never done it to that scope before, but that, you, you know, we fumbled our way through a lot of things um, uh, and and created solutions simply because we weren't following the, the path of people who'd done it before. So anytime somebody said, well, you can't do that because it's never been done that way. We were like, well, wouldn't it be smarter and wouldn't it actually serve us better if we did it this way? You know, well, and it, it's conversations as simple as like they uh, the animators were like, well, you can't. Have water. There is no such thing as stop motion water. I'm like, well, I bet there is. Because the aesthetic of the show, the style of the show, can be whatever the fuck we say it is. And so we could have like oscillating um, uh, wave forms in the front of frame like they do in a children's play, and that's gonna be fine. People like, who will cares? Buy that. who cares? Who cares? That's not, uh, it, it becomes the aesthetic style of the show. Especially in a day and age when people are making things like the Blair Witch or, um, Well, what's that uh, salad fingers or whatever the fuck like the the Internet was just being born at the time that we were making the show and all of our aesthetic choices became a a declaration of style. The restrictions that were forced upon you forced a style. Yeah. Well, it was it was just a decision of like, what are we going to focus on? We're going to focus on what's funny and sometimes doing something that silly makes it extra funny.
0: Was there a moment that you knew that you had something
1: special? In that when, first batch. When we went to San Diego, well, I thought we had something special, right? I fucking loved the, the show that we were making. I thought it was hilarious. I mean, that, was, that, that, that other people thought was special. We got the numbers back pretty early. Uh, like, our third episode was in the high hundred thousands of views, and we thought that was pretty impressive. But we also knew that that was a product of the network itself, that people were tuning into the Adult Swim because they had an expectation of a landing zone. Like, they they knew this was a... a um, an environment, a culture that they felt um, accepted in, a part of, that, that that this was kind of the, the you know, misfit status on your sleeve kind of place. Um, but the, the the and, and so when we were making stuff and like shooting stop motion and doing things like um, uh, supervillain carpool or uh, the new version of real world metropolis or like Voltron breakdancing, I was like, yeah, we fucking got something here. This is something. But we also... Still at that time, because the Internet was very young, you didn't know how popular any of these icons, any of these brands, any of these ideas would be. The references that you're sourcing. Well, you know, I grew up as a isolated, lonely, nerdy person who held aloft all of these um, seemingly stupid pop culture things as the most important storytelling of the day. And that belief had not been accepted into mass pop culture. I was still um, concealing my knowledge, my depth of knowledge for all of this stuff from any of my actual work peers. But I knew that Charlize Theron didn't give a fuck about this episode of G.I. Joe or what this Transformers name is. But but there was a there was you know, we're talking about we're, we're mixing a bunch of things at the same time. But that was a that was a moment where San Diego Comic-Con, where all of the things at it, where Transformers or Marvel started to seep into acceptable pop zeitgeist, where it stopped being these um, tightly protected icons and stories that only were appropriate for nerds or children and started to become what they started on the path to becoming what they are today, which is the most popular and successful intellectual property on the planet. And this was at Comic-Con. So this would have been what year, do you suppose? 2007 was the year they had uh, a covered Optimus Prime on the floor. And that was the first time that Hollywood started to slowly infiltrate Comic-Con. It was still, you know... T- 10 years before celebrity gifting suites or EW having the party du jour at San Diego. And like the thing becoming m- more of a um, grassroots pop expo than a place where people actually could buy comics. Like I, I, you relate it to a paper convention where paper enthusiasts go and they meet and they talk innovations in paper and printing. And then all of a sudden Hollywood is only making movies about paper and paper production and, you know, gradient colors of uh, uh, mulch or whatever. And it's, you know, you have people cosplaying as paper, right? Like it's a very extreme circumstance. So, um, but but the moment that I knew that the show was working was the first time we brought it to San Diego Comic Con, and we had a room of three thousand people that were all like, "I remember that Snuggle fabric softener ad, and that always scared the shit out of me. I remember." that um, Midnight Madness movie and that fucking Leon character, like people saying, I always thought it was weird that Optimus Prime didn't have to pee, like our private musings, which had been um, isolated to our personal water cooler conversations, the the technology to connect us all created a larger community of people that all shared these ideas. A community was revealed. Yeah, and I'd been to I'd been to Comic-Con before like we brought Buffy to Comic-Con and so I'd had that response, but I was also a fan and I'd been going to to San Diego since uh summer 94, you know. Um and so I watched the growth of it. I I got to it was part of why I thought I was good at it was because I really understood what it was like to be on the other side of all these tables or waiting in line for a panel. Um and then I wanted to, from the stage, like, give the people what they wanted.
0: Was it strange to be moving from an actor
1: to someone who's creating something that you're not visibly in? Um, I didn't think about it as one sacrificing the other. Um, it was really just another expression. And I'd spent my life, you know, doing voices or doing radio or uh Performing in cartoons and so getting to show off um, My variety of skills uh, Under the guise of making this show that's that was all it's all been satisfying you came to the shrimp boil. I did What do you remember about that? I just remember the ice storm. Do you remember that? Fucking I do, yeah, that
0: was the Aqua it um, was it was a, a Aqua party At a bar and there was an ice storm and
1: everybody got stuck in Atlanta what well, was twofold? We had the actual shrimp oil at ad Adult Swim yeah. in that in that Williams Street facility, <clears throat> and uh, I just remember there being ping pong tables and discovering that Lazo played ping pong, and yeah. I was like, "Yeah, man, we can do this." This is actually a funny story. Yeah. He, we played ping pong. Him and Keith, he and Keith came over to uh, my condo. It was just the four of us, and we we played a bunch of ping pong, and he was wearing a button up shirt that he took off because it got hot while we were playing. And he left it at my house for uh, a while. And then he went back to Atlanta and Matt joked with him like, oh, we're going to give you this shirt back at some point. We just never gave it back. And then uh, we just went out to see him because, you know, he's talking about retiring. Yeah. We brought him that shirt back. And he was like, holy shit, and put it on and then just like wore it for the rest of the day. He remembered it. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. It was like a full circle thing.
0: It's got to be strange that the 10th season
1: is upon you. Or maybe it's not. It is. I don't know any other showrunners that have, <laughs> that have stayed on their creation uh, as involved as I have. It feels it feels almost foolish. What's your involvement? Uh, I am still day to day, but I I I uh, I stopped directing the day to day show uh, in the fourth season. Chris McKay, who had been editing for us, um, shadowed me the third season. And then directed the fourth and fifth season all all himself. And it was a great exercise for me to uh, pull back and um, not be less involved, but be less um, concerned with the specificity of each thing. It's like I've been been open to giving other artists the ability to interpret our idea and hopefully enhance it uh, beyond what my own capacities are. Um, And quite frankly, all of this was born out of my own personal uh, loves and passions. And over time, we have spoken to each of those so completely that for us just to um, maintain currency, it's it's critical to bring in younger writers to talk about their own pop culture interactions like at our best. Robot Chicken is a a dissection of um, pop culture and current events through an ironic and self-reflective of uh, self-reflective lens. So like a, a toy based Saturday night live, um, that doesn't, uh, need to be as current because it's about what sticks, not about what's talking, what, what people are talking about right now. So we're not, we're not trying to talk about what's happening in news or politics or pop right now. We're, we're talking about what is semi-permanent, you know, like, um, there's the things that, you, that are worth spending a minute of, of content on, and then there's the stuff that you only want to talk about for, like, three seconds. It's probably a f- you have to be
0: careful not to take these topical things that are too topical that you don't feel like
1: will be relevant in, in 10 years. Exactly. We're a different kind of show than SNL. Like, we're not live, and we don't owe it to our audience to be news-based or politically-based. This is really just about the silliness of pop and what sticks to you. So how has the you're talking about hiring younger people? You, you yeah, you want it. Just a, it's writers and artists because the, yeah. the show is like you know it's a crew of like a hundred people. Your sources for uh, your sources have to evolve
0: over the course of ten years.
1: Yeah, you know we've talked all we can about GI Joe or Transformers or the Smurfs or things, and you know generationally, people that were um, emotionally attached to all those are in their 40s or or later. And so if we want to continue to have an audience, we have to continue to talk about new things. Like uh, any any show that's referential, even even Family Guy, they continue to talk about new and current stuff. It's not just about the 80s pop and saying, like, did you ever notice that Scooby-Doo does this? Was there a moment in the production and in the, in the seasons that you had to make that choice or was it just a gradual... Evolution. Yeah. By the second season, we realized that we needed to have other writers, that just the four of us or five of us weren't going to be able to generate enough material for an ongoing series. And so we w- were looking to get other voices. And we went to all kinds of places. We, you know, solicited from Groundlings, from UCB, from stand up, from, um, uh, you know, TV writers and comedy writers. We, we just tried to get new, interesting voices to come and talk about the pop that stuck to them or lend their voice to this kind of format. What instructions do you give them or what cautions do you get or do you tell them to do or not to do? Uh, the main thing that we talk about is what constitutes parody and what is a joke. And, you know, to that end, it's, it's a lot of just real time experience. Um, it's very hard to give someone a mandate instruction until they've started submitting things for you, and then you can talk practically about why this works or why it doesn't work or what you could do to make this work or what just isn't worth exploring. And it takes a little bit of training to get them on the right track. Yeah, it's usually the first week of any cycle is always a, a bit of a clusterfuck as brand new people trying to figure out what
0: how to how to
1: do the thing.
0: Have you been turned on to
1: things that you didn't know about because of these – writers? Um, it, is, it is crazy how current I have been able to stay um, just by hearing things that people bring to us. But what, what's hard about that is I'm at a disadvantage with respect to even applying my own philosophy to it. So part of why um, I felt I was so valuable in the first several seasons is that I could apply my perspective or my sense of humor To the nuance of deconstructing a particular icon because I was so well familiar with it that I could make a a culturally accessible joke that both satisfied a super fan and um, a novice. Right. So even if you don't know about Ghostbusters, we're going to tell a joke that someone who doesn't know anything about Ghostbusters could get. But if you know about Ghostbusters, there is a bunch of extra Easter egg, super funny stuff for you. So the further I get away from firsthand experience with new pop and the more it is just related to me by someone else through their interpretation, the less I'm able to be such a uh, benefit to the construction of whatever joke. And I find myself in a position which is is part of why I've uh, been able to pull back in different areas and focus on other kinds of creation because, you know, it's like, all right, you guys got this. We've, we've showed you how we like to do it. We've showed you how we like to write jokes. And now it's, it's kind of up to you to serve that, um, directive, but through your own, through your own voice. So if
0: you compare fundamentally the, this upcoming 10th season with the first season, what are the big differences that you see? I mean, obviously the production has become
1: smoother. Um, More efficient, maybe. Yeah. I mean, we know how to do it and we, we don't fall into the same pitfalls. It it, it happens a lot faster. Um, but the, 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 the difference in the content is just the evolution of comedy itself. Like it feels like every 10 years, comedy sort of fundamentally changes into something else as a new generation learns from the previous generation and adapts it for their own uses and says, no, this is what's funny. Um, I felt like when our show first came on, we were doing all this ironic self-reflection and that that became the vogue of comedy in general. Like you'd see commercials that were more of a deconstruction of a commercial than somebody saying, I bought this product and it serves exactly this purpose. You know, now it's like. Someone with a Skittles infection picking Skittles off of someone else's face and saying, your infection tastes good. Oh, no, now I'm infected. Like th- these are just the extremes of what we find funny.
0: Has that been a uh, – so the show is – you feel like the show has directly influenced
1: things like advertising? Uh, I feel like we are a part of a cultural shift in that kind of comedy. I wouldn't claim any kind of responsibility for so it. So 10 years later
0: then, what's the, what's the, what's the zeitgeist now?
1: Well, there is a a general acceptance of stuff that is not necessarily a a formulaic joke. Like there isn't necessarily a beginning, middle and end to a joke. There isn't even necessarily a point. There is a lot of stuff that's just a little weird and so unusual that that warrants uh, a laugh and not necessarily a, a gut laugh, but somebody saying, oh, that's funny. And so I see a lot of that coming out of the writing room over the last two seasons where it's less of a belly laugh for me, but it's a belly laugh for a young writer who is tickled by this evolving style of comedy.
0: Has the network been uh, involved, I mean,
1: creatively beyond the first couple of seasons? Like, what is your relationship with with them? Uh, network is awesome. I've never had as much creative freedom and when they give us advice or have concerns it is always from a fundamentally valuable place like they never just you know get their prints all over it they they there's always a point there's always a point of view um but they in the, especially in the first and second season if they disagreed with something, they would give us the chance to speak about it. And in a couple cases, we convinced them to let us go forward with stuff. Can you think of a, an example? Yeah, the best example is the Tooth Fairy sketch. So we wrote a sketch that is all about sound. That's one of my favorite things from coming from radio is that you can tell a story in sound that does things to the brain of the listener that you can't do visually. You simply can't afford to accomplish those kinds of things. And, and also you can tell a far more imaginative story through sound than you can through uh, a visual representation because the audience will interpret it themselves and it's just between them and their their own consciousness. So I love that idea. We had this sketch where a kid is sleeping in a bed and it's all idyllic and beautiful and like the window gently opens with all this fairy dust and the tooth fairy materializes next to the bed and gently uh, picks up the pillow and like takes out the tooth from behind it. Magically places a coin and sort of grips her hands at her chin and just like, ah, oh, my job is the best. And then from the hallway, <laughs> a light comes on and a door slams and you hear, "Where the hell were you?" And you hear, "I am just out. I'm just out." What do you, what do you even want? It's just read me the right. She's like, "You're out of the bag Yeah, there's another woman." And it like turns into this crazy fight. The kid wakes up. It's all in the view of the... It's all on the view of the kid in the bed. So the kid wakes up. The Tooth Fairy is right next to him. She's frozen like a cockroach with the lights on. And he just like, Are you are you the Tooth Fairy? And she just goes, I... Uh, yeah. And then she sits down. And from the hallway, you hear this getting out of hand. Like, it's turning violent. You're hearing shit break. You're hearing things happen. And then the Tooth Fairy is like, J- Just a second. So she goes out into the hallway. And you hear who the fuck are you? And like, you hear a fist fight between the Tooth Fairy and the dad and it, it, it's so ridiculous. The Tooth Fairy comes back in and she's like c- covered in blood and uh, she sits down next to the kid and they just stare at each other for a minute and she goes, uh, you be good now and then goes out the window and um <laughs> We had written a couple of alternate endings for it, um, one where uh, the situation is kind of the same, and then the dad comes back in, and the Tooth Fairy is not there anymore. The dad is covered in blood, and the dad's got a suitcase, and he goes, hey, champ, we're uh, going on a t- t- vacation. Pa- pa- pack your shit. We're going on a trip. And he's like, I- is 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 mom coming? And he's like, we're going to Disneyland. And, um, <laughs> We said this – we said it to them and they were like, you know, I don't like this sketch at all. This is incredibly fucking dark. This might be the darkest sketch in television history. I've wow. never even seen anything like this. You can't do this. And we were like, I really think this is a valuable comedic exercise. Maybe there's a way to push it through. Wow. And
0: as an exercise.
1: As an exercise. We just thought it was very funny. Yeah. E- even though it is dark and sad, it's action figures <laughs> – and so, if anything, we're highlighting the dangers of domestic violence, but but we're also showcasing something as ludicrous as the reality of a fucking tooth fairy. So there, there's a, there's a lot of gray area there. What we what we suggested was maybe we show each of the alternate endings. That was the pitch. Was like, well, what if we show both of the alternate endings? So one one version is the tooth fairy coming back in, and then we say alternate ending, and you see the dad come back in with the suitcase. And then what if there's a third ending where? Um, you know, like a publisher's clearinghouse a brigade shows up with a giant check and like hula dancers. And they say to the kid, you know, the dad comes in. He's all bloody. The tooth fairy comes in. They're all bloody. They're all celebrating. And they're like, congratulations. This is the darkest sketch in television history. And they give the kid the check. And then they start chanting darkest sketch, darkest sketch. And Laza was like, eh, OK. And so that's that's what we put on the air. And he maintained firmly that it was not something that we should do. That it wasn't a good idea and wasn't funny. And then when we executed it, when we delivered the final thing with all the alternate endings, he was like, I will say I was wrong and I like this now. And so that's the most extreme case of us being given enough rope to hang ourselves um, and the result of it being something positive. But there's also sketches that they killed where they were like, yo, you just don't – this just isn't a thing. We were like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Did you get any pushback from anybody on that ultimately?
0: On that sketch? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean not, not the publicly, network but nobody publicly. wrote us
1: nobody wrote us letters, yeah, it was one of those things that people asked us about it cons that they thought it was funny, yeah,
0: yeah I wonder how robot chicken would uh behave like or, or I guess I wonder how it would arrive on the scene now, you know, the nature of the shorts and stuff would it be would it arrive as you know, ten or
1: eleven individual pieces, or would it come as a whole show? I don't know. At the time that we put the show out, there was not this kind of lean towards short form content. Like even doing quarter hours was not the vogue, but especially such a rapid fire joke dispensary, like t- two second sketches that are just a punchline. Like that, that that didn't really exist in the same in the same format. Um, I, I don't know what it would what it would be i mean we don't we, we're still making this and it's still it's still working as is so we're just trying to evolve what what we're talking about um and any other hypothesis on format we're just trying in a different shape
0: yeah so you guys were ahead of the game with the short form content and it coincided with the rise of youtube and all that
1: it did. The first year that we were in production, YouTube was just forming and people hadn't uploaded this volume of stuff. So mm-hmm. we, we couldn't do the kind of research that we can do now. We didn't have the, like we, we had a toy wrangler up until the, the fourth season. We had to have a person like physically go to stores all around Los Angeles and try and track shit down. We didn't have the, the access to a global marketplace for, you know, right. vintage items. Right. eBay. So a toy wrangler. So you'd have a walk us through a a case study in toy wrangling. Well, if you were interested in collecting toys, then you knew all of the places around town or all of the vendors that traded in that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, the whole reason that Robot Chicken exists is because we were all such enthusiasts for that that stuff that we knew all of those things. Like my partner was the editorial director for the uh, industry standard uh, of information was Toy Fair Magazine. And so, you know, we knew where to get the stuff from uh, monthly cons to uh, local consignment shops to individual dealers that were connected to people around the world. Was there a white whale that, you were, that you've been unable to uncover? No. no nothing? Not now, no. Uh, especially at this point. In the first couple seasons of Robot Chicken, people started coming out of the woodwork people that were enthusiasts the same way that we were. And I've gotten to hold in my hands any potential grail item from, like, the mold masters of the straight-arm snake eyes to a unpainted rocket-firing Boba Fett prototype. Like, anything that would have been considered mythological has been, you know, made accessible by uh, the popularity of our show and the connectivity of the Internet. And then... You guys worked with George Lucas in Star Wars. Yeah. And that seemed to take everything to a different level. Yeah, we had made this um, Emperor phone call sketch and it got the attention of Lucasfilm and George saw it and showed it to a board meeting at one point. And then their uh, publicity director, Tracy Canobio, reached out to us to ask us if we wanted to come, like, have a meeting with them and take a tour of the Presidio. And I had gotten to go to um, MTV hosted uh, a series of events for the prequels up at Skywalker Ranch. And I'd gotten to go to those and meet George that way. But that it just wasn't the same as this. Um, and we had this meeting where they were talking about that they liked our comedy and they liked this application towards Star Wars. And they wanted to know if there was something that we could do together. And Matt was the one who pitched a half hour of Star Wars dedicated robot chicken. And they liked that idea. That's all it was, just like that. That was all it was, just like that. And so we set about writing a half hour of sketch content. And we sort of got, you know, more bold as we went along and wrote a sketch about a fan interaction with George and, like, asked if it was possible to get George to do it. Um, And they were – everyone was – nervous about bringing it to him but when they brought it to him he agreed to do it and we did two, two sketches with him that were significant the one where our nerd runs into him at a con and like meets him in an elevator and flips out on him but the other one which is actually my favorite thing it's George, it was a promo, it's George on a therapist's couch and he said well you know that fucking holiday special was the worst thing I ever made uh, I, let, I let another network run amok with my characters and I hate it, I hate it And now I've done it again. I let these idiots from Robot Chicken (laughs) (laughs) make an hour of content. And the therapist is like, "Uh, Robot Chicken, the hit stop motion television show? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's the one. I don't know why I would do this. Basically, just why would I do this? And he's like, well, they made a toy of me and they said I could keep it. And we got him to do that. Did you think that he would? "Um, I, I, you know, sometimes you're just like, do this. Do this. There's no reason for you not to do this. And I kept pushing, even though they said they didn't want him to. To ask him, and um, why didn't they want to ask him? do you think? Um, you know when somebody accomplishes the things that he's accomplished, there is a tendency to revere them to an extreme uh-huh. um, and and take everything so seriously that you you want to protect them from anything that could be potentially embarrassing or insulting and I could absolutely understand how the perception of our novelty Sketch show could be <laughs> any of those things, that this could be like taking the piss, that this could be insulting to him. But, um, you know, he's he's a guy that likes to have fun. Um, and all of this is so serious that that he wants to have fun with it. And so we made him feel safe um, and we assured him that he would be protected. Did he have to approve it? Yeah. And he, yeah, he ultimately got approval over anything. Gosh, that had to have been a little stressful sending sending that over to him. A little bit. A little bit. But I've also, you know, I've spent my life, like I started working with movie stars when I was seven years old. Yeah. And so the, the most impressive and intimidating of people, they just, again, they chose this profession on purpose because they can do a thing that's a skill. Yeah. And they want to be engaged that way. So, you know, any other movie star that you're going to work with, They don't want you to be like, oh, my God, you're a fucking movie star. What do I do? They just want you to do your job. Right. And so George is a filmmaker. George is a content creator. He doesn't want people that are scared of him. He doesn't want people that are intimidated by him. He just wants people that can participate. And so that was like the breakthrough that I had with him personally was the moment when I could get over the fact that he's George Lucas and created some of my favorite things and just participate with him uh, in, in making stuff. Something you had to get over. It wasn't. Yeah, the first several times I met him, I was a total idiot. <laughs> Thank God he'll never remember any of those because he meets thousands of idiots.
0: <laughs> You've been doing this for two hundred episodes. Yeah, and that's happening. Yeah, this season. Yeah. How, without revealing anything, how do you? How do you? Is it? Is a celebration of two hundred for you guys? Is it for the audience? Like, how do you? Why,
1: how do you decide to celebrate that and how do, you, how do you do it? So I came in this season really pushing for us to do something significant in our 200th. We've ended every season with some kind of catastrophe or disaster or cancellation of the show. And we've started every season with some kind of renewal or a reinvention uh, of the same thing. And I, I really wanted us to do something that was bigger And not like us having a space battle, or it wasn't just about something visual. I wanted to do some kind of, not deconstruction of the format, but something that was evolved. Um, And I'm really happy with this 200th episode. I think that it is a lot of things, but the thing that it is most is very funny, um, very entertaining, um, and I think it'll be really satisfying uh, to the audience. Is that the final episode of the batch? It is. The it's, last one. It's the last episode of this season. Will there be a 300th episode? Uh, shit, man, this has been 15 years in the making, so I guess that's still TBD. <laughs> <laughs> but we'd love to. I mean, we we want to keep making this. You know? We yeah. still feel like there's a lot of gas in the engine. And um, the more we can continue to bring in... Um, young modern creatives to help serve the same purpose, the, the better I think our chances are of surviving. What's the gas that, that's kept you going? We still like all this stuff. You know, we're still really entertained by modern and current pop. We're still um, finding uh, our sense of humor um, active and targeted uh, towards all of these things that are culturally significant. Um, we still enjoy each other's company. We have not rubbed each other so wrong that we can't stand the sight of one another. We have not wronged each other in so many personal ways that we can't bear to see each other succeed. Wow. We're, you know what I'm saying? I've yeah. seen, I mean, I've seen people in bands or people on shows. Like, you see it go wrong for all kinds of reasons. Why hasn't it gone wrong for you guys? You, you like each other. We like each other. There's not a ton of ego, um, you know? What's Matt's problem? Sunrise. Yeah. Too driven. <laughs> <laughs> Needs a, a, He's he's taken the Steve Jobs philosophy and wardrobe and just has like 100 of the same outfit. <laughs> is that a, is that a problem or is that no, just
0: No, I think it's a it's an asset. It's a strength, right? It's a strength. No. Seth Green, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Right on. Is that that it? That's it. it? Oh, that's easy. Congratulations. Thanks.
0: Visit adultswim.com slash podcast for links to some of the things Seth and I were just talking about. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Adultism podcast at gmail.com. Thanks to Dave Bonowitz, who, along with Christina Loringer, edited and produced these Robot Chicken Week podcasts. Thanks also to Maggie Cannon for arranging everything, and thank you for listening.